From Radio Milwaukee and the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project, this is Be Seen. I'm Nate Imig. On this episode... This is our Vietnam. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form AIDS of just surprised us all. We don't know what we're dealing with and we don't know how it's spread. The condition severely weakens the body's ability to fight disease. AIDS also causes unusual infections with death rates of 100% in two years. This was our little personal war and no one cared. You know, it made me work even harder about that community education so that it was not okay anymore to say no to somebody with AIDS. And that became my big agenda. Michael, this episode is a is a really important one. I, as we were recording it here in the studios, um, we covered some really difficult topics and heard some just incredibly heartbreaking stories. And it's because we're talking about HIV and AIDS and how that uh, arrived in Milwaukee, how it impacted the community, but also how the community responded. And there's some some really heroic efforts where the community came together, addressed this crisis. You're exactly right. I really cannot even begin to process the emotion of this podcast. I mean, there's just so much sorrow and so much loss, and yet at the same time, so much hope, which is really something um, that there is hope out of out of so much darkness. Yeah, and we, we of course talk about the human impact, and we, we share some of those uh, early organizations that popped up to address the, the AIDS crisis. But we also talk about the present day. I mean, the innovation and the leaps that have occurred scientifically around HIV prevention and the new drugs and the just all the effort uh, of these community groups that have gone into prevention, we're in a much more hopeful place than we were in the 1980s when this was first sweeping across the world. What I find most fascinating are the parallels between now and then, where you have um, these very culturally competent community groups coming forward to the front lines and really being the front line of defense against something as big and horrible and devastating as the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, in both cases, both both the past and the present, you have these very talented, very smart, very committed people who are just so invested in the community and, and doing what's right for them against such overwhelming odds. And it's it just, it really is very inspiring and probably one of the most inspiring in our entire series. And of course, these these conversations are difficult. We want to just prepare you that these conversations, we're going to go there. We're going to talk about, um, you know, death and and um, family relationships and, and all sorts of things that are wrapped into this. Michael, who do we have on, on the lineup for this episode? So today we have Sue Dietz, formerly of the Milwaukee AIDS Project and the AIDS Resource Center of Wisconsin, and Mark Bihar of Milwaukee Health Services. And what's really interesting to me is, um, you know, the the Brady Street STD Clinic, the Best STD Clinic, which is still involved today. I mean, these these folks were involved in the very early days of that, and you can still see, you know, the evidence of this work um, helping people, real people today. Yes, I think actually their involvement goes all the way back to the Gay People's Union STD screening clinics of the late 1970s, which is just unreal. Oh yes, yes, this is the Farwell Center. I recognize the vertical uh, wood decorations there. Mark and Sue go way back. 
As we sat down to record, Mark was on the phone with Sue on speakerphone, and they got to catching up before we could even patch Sue into the board. They hadn't talked to each other in years, and they started looking at this photograph that they had emailed each other right away. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the person on the top left is Roger Gremminger. I know that. As Michael mentioned, these two were integral to Milwaukee's and Wisconsin's response to HIV and AIDS when it first arrived and in the years leading up to it. Sure, sure. Uh, they, they'd like to get started, so uh, they're going to call you back on the other line right now. Okay. okay, so I'll hang up. Sue is straight and Mark is gay. Three, four, five. Sounds great. You sound really good. One, two, three, four, five. That was good. Could you like it sexier? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you want to give it a go. Hey, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right, I'm Sue D. I uh, am retired now. I live in Virginia, but for many years I lived in Wisconsin. And for a long time, um, I don't know, 15 years or so, I worked with the gay community in SPDs and eventually in AIDS. My name is Mark Bihar, and uh, I've been involved with the Milwaukee gay community since the mid-1970s. Mark was part of a socially conscious group of medical professionals and activists. Together with volunteers, they formed the Farwell Center on Milwaukee's east side in 1975. The Farwell Center was sort of the, the first gay community center that allowed... Uh, community groups to meet at the center and was sort of a focal point for community activities because there was nothing else. The center would later move locations and change names, but it stayed true to its mission of providing sexual health care, testing, and counseling to the gay community. It moved to a, a location on Booth Street in the River West area uh, and, and stayed there until 1980 uh, through 81, I think. Um, and then 1982, we came to locate this building on Brady Street, and Roger Gremminger, who was the, uh, the then medical director of the clinic, was able to negotiate lease and, and uh, I think, initial rental, and then eventually purchase of the building, and then he eventually donated the mortgage to pay it off to the clinic. So from about 82 to the present time, it was located on Brady Street, and it was on East Brady, so we called it Brady East, and we dealt with STDs because that was the modern term rather than VD, so we called it the Brady East STD Clinic. In those early days, though, the clinic almost ran entirely on volunteers and next to no budget. Because the federal government controlled most of the research money, no one wanted to fund gay men's health stuff about how to fuck. Remember, the clinic was established in 1975, several years before HIV would arrive in Wisconsin. Before AIDS, gonorrhea and chlamydia were the biggest worries for gay men. And pre-AIDS, communities were seeing spikes in cases. So in response, Sue and Mark, they went to a place where they could make the biggest impact with that small budget. I was the only woman who'd ever been in the club bath. <laughs> yes, you were the, certainly the first. <laughs> they went to one of the gay bathhouses in Milwaukee, and this was a pretty novel idea, the, the notion of on-site testing. So not only right. did, we, did we do it, uh, I think, once or twice a week at the, at the Farwell Center, but we also had, I think, one or two nights per month we would go 
from 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. to club baths with our blood drawing equipment and we had to plate things out because there were no rapid tests at that time. And then we had to put the gonorrhea cultures in a pickle jar, lit a candle because they preferred to live in an incubator and in a carbon dioxide environment. And then at at 2 a.m., we'd finish with the baths and we'd drive from the club baths on 7th and Wisconsin down to City Hall, use their night entrance, go to their incubators, deposit the quantity of, of medical specimens, and then the state and the city would follow up with us with positives and negatives. I would say the clients that we took care of didn't um, have a healthcare provider, or if they did, it was somebody to go get their tetanus shot or something. You know, it wasn't any, I don't think any of them or most of them had um, clinicians that they could talk about their lifestyle with. And, And so they told us everything. HIV that first started in 81 and 82 we were starting to freak out, but there was just a state of disbelief, uh, silent panic, I think, and um, denial. When the first national news came out about HIV, they some of the news media contacted us and said, do you have any people who could speak on television news, you know, local news about this? And we checked, we contacted all the physicians that we could find. No one wanted to be on television. Even the hospitals weren't, um, what's the word, hospitable at that time. We, Our medical director for the AIDS Project was Paul Turner, and wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, he worked as an infectious disease specialist at Milwaukee County Hospital. So I volunteered. I was a volunteer nurse at the county hospital, which I didn't even know you could do, but he figured it out. And so I worked several hours at county every week and uh, staffed his clinic, doing the lab work and the counseling and education and so forth. And then I would go and see our clients who were inpatients there. There was a man who was a very, very dear friend of mine. And he was, I'm trying not to use names. He was a really big figure in the gay community, big, tall, uh, burly man, leather, had a leather bar, um, and one of my dearest friends, I remember going to his room and watching a nurse put his dinner tray down on the floor and push it through the door with her foot and walk away. Um, and he couldn't get out of bed. So I took his tray to him and helped him eat. I brought in um, Tiger Bomb. He had bad chapped lips, and he was crying. And so... I put my arms around him, he put his arms around me, we sobbed together, and he was getting pretty tired. I said, you need to lay down. He said, don't leave. I said, okay, I tell you what, I will stay here, I'll rub your back till you fall asleep, but then I gotta go get something to eat. And he said, okay, and that's what we did. When I left, um, I had scrubs on, and I was completely soaked. And just wet with his tears. And I can remember walking down the hall thinking, I wonder if this virus is in tears. You know, we didn't know. This is tragic and heartbreaking. I, I Immediately you feel emotional. And I can only imagine what you all went through during this time, seeing this happen. 
time after you know week after week we were we were talking in, uh, to Bjorn about the um, the drag show benefits that he was doing for the community and you know he said he was losing people like three a month you'd be going to three funerals a month well, many of us walled it off this is our Vietnam this is our um, tragedy that that we couldn't deal with at all we couldn't deal with it because it was so ongoing so we had to put it on hold and, and put it away um, and maybe we would think about dealing with it at another time but we didn't have the time to deal with it so we so my way of dealing with it was not being emotional and and putting it away in a box this was our little personal war and no one cared. No, we had the idea from outside, politically, nationally, um, from everyone on the top, from the CDC publicly to every everywhere else. No one seemed to care. You know, I think I think for for the the current generation and and, and forward and onward, I, I a lot a lot of us have forgotten about. Just didn't live it, you know. Didn't didn't experience, didn't have these same lived experiences as you both, you know. Just don't understand the gravity of of what you all dealt with, and we've touched on some of it. I mean, Sue, the the um, the story you share about your your scrubs being covered in tears, uh, I can't even imagine. And the idea that that you were there rubbing his back, regardless, in that moment, and 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 caring for him as a human being, and as a healthcare professional, as a volunteer. Um, not worried about the transmission in that moment, but but being there for another human being is remarkable. And you know, so many gay men were put in this this tragic position of, of coming out to their parents at the same time that they were coming home to die. Do you remember any reactions from parents who were coping with all this trauma happening all at once? Oh, lots. Um, I was thinking actually about that. Um, the man who um, that I was talking to me that you were just referencing there with the back rub and um, his partner was another wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, they were from, he was from Missouri and his mom, I think his father had passed by then. He was, his mom was there though, and his aunt. And when he became ill, his partner died first. And when he became very ill, his mom came to see him. He was actually in the hospital when she arrived. And he asked me to be there. And, um, uh, you know, there was all kind of hugging and everything. And we talked for a while. And I said, well, I'll, I'll let you all have some time. He said, no, I want you to stay because I want to tell him all of this. And he did. He told him the whole thing, that he was gay when he knew it, um, you know, some of his activities, he didn't go into any great detail, and, and that when he moved to Milwaukee and how he lived and this partner that we both loved so much, and the mom and the aunt just sat there with their mouths open. They had no idea. He was in his 30s, and they just stared at him, and then they got up like they were going to leave, and I, and I said, we hope you'll stay, and they just stood there for a really long time and then they started crying and they were sobbing and then he was crying and I was crying. And so they, they came over to the bed and sat down next to him. Now they were afraid of him. And I said, it's okay. You can hug him. It's okay. And they did. And it was just, you know, gosh, here I get into me now. I, 
I can remember one man, um, he wanted so much to make up with his family. And this is before we had lawyers. We did eventually get lawyers on staff, but um, to help with wills and that sort of thing, probate, whatever. Um, but uh, I was his, his, whatever you say, executor of his will. And one of the things he'd asked for was that his um, childhood toy, which was a, a um, teddy bear that he'd had on his pillow all of his life, um, be returned to his mother. And so I went to her house. She wasn't at the funeral or anything. I mean, she had absolutely no contact with him. And uh, he was really sad about that when he died. But I, I went there with this teddy bear in my arms and explained. She came to the door. And she recognized it right away, and she just stood there stone-faced looking at me and um, said, I, I explained what I was there for to give her this, that he wanted this, it was in his last will and testament, that she has this, and she slammed the door in my face. You know, it was just not right. I still have that bear. I didn't know what to do with it. I kept it um, on my pillow now. Um, it has been for 40 years. Thanks to the work of volunteers like Sue and Mark and the organizations they later formed, HIV prevention has entered a new era. After the break, we'll talk about new drug treatments like PrEP and how a new wave of local leaders of color are picking up Mark and Sue's work today. Next on Be Seen. Support for 88.9 Radio Milwaukee comes from your membership and Alverno College, which offers a range of professional development opportunities for women and men, from certificates to graduate degrees. More information at alverno.edu slash adult learning. We can never undo the destruction that AIDS caused in the LGBTQ community, but we can do our best to make sure that future generations don't experience the same loss. Here in Milwaukee, there's a group that's seeing to that. It's a Black-led, grassroots effort called Empowering Community Action Initiative. It serves queer people of color who continue to contract HIV and AIDS at higher rates than their white peers. But what makes their work really different is how and where they do this outreach. We'll explain more about that later on. But it all centers around safer sex education and HIV prevention, specifically around testing, and prep. Because there was a point where HIV was seen as a death sentence. Here is Erin Bledsoe, one of the organizers of the outreach program. Um, representing the Empowering Community Action Initiative. It was founded by Ricardo Wynn. Um, I'm also a proud member of the Milwaukee chapter of the iconic International House of Mizrahi. PrEP is a new kind of HIV prevention. It stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis and essentially uses two of the drugs typically used to fight HIV preemptively in patients. PrEP is, I believe, 99% effective in preventing HIV um, transmission um, in cisgender men and um, individuals who were assigned male at birth. I was just attending like my annual checkup um, at the doctor's office and I asked them, I said, you know, could you give me some more information about PrEP or just HIV prevention in general? And the person, I, I believe she was a nurse, she literally just printed off sheets from like Wikipedia 
And I was like, well, I know how to find information. <laughs> I need, Wikipedia, right? <laughs> I need, like, information about your services that you right. offer. And then she had, you know, shared the the name of a particular office here in the in the city. Um, and even the, the name of the office itself is very interesting. I believe it's the Department of Infectious mm-hmm. Diseases. Yep. And even talking to the doctor who... Um, he took issue with that. He said, you know, we, we do acknowledge that that is um, something that's very controversial and we're, we are trying to address that. Because even you think about thinking about, about that in itself, like you have to go to a place called infectious diseases, you know, think about the stigma behind that and how much fear there is. And, you know, even after getting the name, um, going to like another like front desk person, um, they didn't know where the place was, which I I didn't understand because I'm like, this is in your network. How do you not know? Or how are you not able to acquire where I can find this office? Um, And she literally yelled out, like in the open, like, well, this person here, he's trying to get some information about the infectious diseases office. So can somebody help him? I was like, wow, like this is awkward. (laughs) I had the same experience with my doctor where I was trying to get on prep and I asked him about it and he's like, yeah, you got to call some like infectious disease place and you got to go there. And he's like, I don't really know. I don't I don't have any patients on prep. You know, when you go to your doctor and they're just totally clueless, it makes you feel like, I know tons of people on prep. Like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, There's one central theme, a, a tenant that embodies all of Aaron's work with Empowering Community Action Initiative, and that's building trust among Milwaukee's queer people of color. So one way they're doing that, we heard about this in the previous episode at This Is It, if you missed it. Every other month, they put on a ball. Chad, father, Demira. I am the house father, CEO, and I'm also the chapter father for Wisconsin Milwaukee of the House of Alan Meekly. Aaron and Chad run MKE Vogue Nights, an ongoing ballroom night at This Is It, Wisconsin's oldest gay bar. Yeah, so Vogue Nights are pretty common. Like they're they're prevalent in a, a lot of other cities. Chicago, um, Atlanta has Vogue Nights, LA. Basically what we want to do is just create safe spaces for queer people of color um, to explore voguing, um, learn more about ballroom. You know, everybody's familiar with Pose now and Legendary. It's a safe space um, for people to explore. Um, but more importantly, we just really want to advocate and uplift our community, um, especially when it does come to awareness around HIV and HIV prevention, um, because there are so many disparities um, within our, our communities uh, regarding that. You know, houses have been around for decades. Like, houses are essentially just your chosen family um, because there is such a stigma and just... Uh, controversy around being queer, especially being black and queer, um, and just thinking about what that's like in Milwaukee. Like, I'm in grad school now, and every time I meet somebody who's black, you know, and or queer, I'm like, girl, you need to come here. Like, this is what, what we got going on. Like, come and meet your community, like, meet your family and see what, you know, see what's popping. But what makes MKE Vogue Nights really unique is what it does off the runway. They offer on-site HIV testing and education about PrEP. And what we do is, like, on the main stage, you see the performances and, you know, the judges and everything. But we actually have a space in the back that's free testing, that's very discreet. Um, We have um, free 
community resources and just literature and information for people to have. So really, that is um, one of the ways that we are, you know, doing in a very non-traditional manner. And also, I think it's important that we understand the barriers that our community are having. So Vogue Nights are free. Ball, the balls that we are or have been doing have been free. Um, you go anywhere else, any other state, any other city, you're paying anywhere from 20 to $60 right. just to get in per person. Um, Vogue Nights offer, you know, different incentives. Um, I may know some people because a lot of times I'm outside selling food and we give away, I think it's like 25 to 30 free meals. Mm-hmm. I might say something like, okay, go get tested and show me that you got tested and right. I'll give you a free meal. So it's just about giving back in any innovative way you can. You know, it might just something coming to hit. Okay, go help her get dressed and I got you. And so you might say, you want to try this? I just made this. This is me. I'm just mother, father, everybody when it comes to it. And I'm like, you know what? I just made these. You should come to this. If you get tested, you can get two of them. For real? Boom, they go get tested. So whatever we got to do to engage the community and be a part, we do it. And that's what's been making us successful. I've been going out to the bars, you know, in Milwaukee as long as I've been 21. And I got tested at Fluid when they did testing there. I got tested at bars that are no longer here. And it was kind of, it's probably kind of weird to try to describe that to a straight person about like, Going out on a night out and then getting an HIV test, and it just seems like a buzzkill or like two different worlds. But in our community, it's it's kind of part of our responsibility to each other. And you just kind of explain how it's not – maybe it is a buzzkill, but like there is something empowering about – knowing your status out of respect for yourself and for your your community and for other people. Yeah, and it's especially important, too, like when we think about um, queer people of color because there historically is such a mistrust in our nation's medical institutions, Um, whether you think about Tuskegee experiments, um, different experiments around gynecology, um, just there's always been that, just that separation and that fear People don't feel safe in hospitals. You know, you think about the experiences that black women have in hospitals, um, even black men, too. So it it means something when you can go into a safe space um, that's created by people in your community um, that you trust and that you can depend on. And, you know, you can really rely on them. This is what what we really want to manifest through MKE Vogue Nights, um, just creating awareness but giving people um, a safe space to to be empowered by knowing their status um, and just being able to build community. Absolutely. Certainly important work. So we asked Chad and Aaron what their biggest barrier to their work is. And as you listen to their response, think back to those early days of HIV and the parallels here. Here's Chad. The biggest thing for me is funding and trust. Um, Because it goes kind of both ways. Uh, The people that have the funding, they really don't trust community members that they don't know or they want to go with, you know, people that aren't really doing the work but have the language to write it down. You know what I'm saying? And then trust with the community members. If I'm having an issue and I want to get tested, but I'm scared to get tested because who's testing me? Like, you can trust me. I'm a house parent. I'm not going to tell your business, any of that type of thing. Funding and trust to me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Funding for sure. Like, access is such a huge thing. And that's why I think it's important for people to know that, like, 
HIV awareness and education is not just a public health issue. It really is an equity issue. Um, there still are a lot of communities that don't have access to PrEP. Um, they don't have access to condoms and like lubricant, just, you know, basic things. And, you know, you can walk in like pretty much any clinic and find that. But, you know, when it comes to our communities, like black and brown communities, that there's still very much that disparity that exists. Um, and I think until we address that, like we're still going to face um, a lot of the challenges that we we are um, experiencing around HIV and AIDS. Yeah, when you look at new infections, I mean, you still do see a, a huge disparity, and it's mm -hmm. totally unacceptable. I mean, especially when we have the all the different ways of prevention now. You know, I would I'd imagine for all of us, kind of a, a charge to the community. Like, this is kind of our imperative. We have to do this, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Definitely. That's why it's so important to keep coming up with the inventive ways to put, you know, prevention out there. Because if you're doing the same thing over and over and you're just repackaging or recalling it something else, it's not going to work. I know from experience it's not going to work. You got to be innovative with it. And as long as you're doing something that serves the community and it excites them and it makes them want to be a part so it engages them, yeah. I think we'll get better results. And Chad, you bring up a really important point too like when it comes to that access and representation because when you look at nonprofit leadership there's still that disparity too like there are very few people of color in in those roles that would impact things like funding and access to the resources that people need around HIV, um, either prevention or just education and awareness. And I'm not saying that, like, you know, it has to be a black or, like, a brown person in that role. But usually if you have someone who is from that community who shares those experiences, they share that compassion and that empathy, and they have that understanding. Going back to undetectable, and I because it is being undetectable is the goal if you are... HIV positive, that's where you want to get. And um, I think there's still a lot of stigma around, you know, men who are men and women who are undetectable and living there. Um, you know, and let's say you do go to a Vogue night and you get tested and you find out that you are positive. You know, there is hope after that. You can you can become Absolutely. undetectable. Um, and in fact, it's called undetectable because they cannot detect any um, of the viral load, like in your you know in your um, your blood cells. Um, but you know, it, of course, that that takes time um it takes you you know having that lifestyle that would be conducive for you to to do that um so it like i said it's everybody's responsibility um and you know as you were saying too like there is such a stigma around it um and i think something that we have to realize too is that you know we can be just as harmful to individuals who are hiv positive like it's not just like they're you know, walkers or like zombies or something. And, you know, we have to watch out for them. Like, no, we, we have a responsibility to keep everybody healthy and safe as well, too. Reflecting back on where we started this whole conversation and the massive human cost, we've come a long way. Today, HIV is far more preventable and manageable. But the amazing progress we made with HIV wasn't only because of science. It was also because of people people like Mark and Sue. While they survived the AIDS crisis, they still carry a certain amount of sorrow. You don't do that without becoming different um, and damaged, I guess, in a way. I have a lot of angels on my shoulder. Um, 
most important thing I've ever done in my life. No question. I tell people that all the time. Most important thing I ever did. And um, I'm very grateful for the experience that I had because it taught me that. It just shook me up. It just grabbed me by the shoulders and shook me that that was what was important is to see to leave your mind and your heart open to be able to really see and feel people. And, and, and I, I got to do that. A lot of people never get an opportunity to contribute in that way. And I'm glad that I did. I'm sorry that it came at so much pain, but, um, you know, I was there, all of me, all of me was there. Thank you to Sue Dietz, original co-founder of the AIDS Resource Center of Wisconsin, and Mark Behar, co-founder of Bestie Clinic on Brady Street. Their service to the community lives on today, and there's no way to ever really know how many lives they impacted. All of Wisconsin owes a thanks to these two. Well, that wraps up season one of Be Seen from Radio Milwaukee and the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. If you listen to all six episodes, we are so appreciative. And we'd love to know what you thought of our show. Please take a moment to rate and review and help us share this work out beyond Pride Month. Any recommendation or word of mouth helps out a ton. If there's if there's somebody that you know who would like this show, please share it with them and discuss. And since we're here at the very end, we can let you in on a little secret. Michael and I have been working on a bonus episode for season one of Be Seen. Throughout our research, we kept hearing this rumor that many of Milwaukee's gay bars were once either run or financed by the mafia. We looked into this claim for real, and we got a we got a reputable expert, somebody who literally wrote a book about this, to weigh in on whether or not this is true. We'll release that at a future date and time, and who knows, maybe we'll have some more content for you in the meantime. Please do subscribe while you're here, and make sure you get that bonus content delivered to you, and we'll talk to you next time on Be Seen. I'm Nate Imig, along with Michael Takash. Thank you for listening. This is Be Seen from Radio Milwaukee and the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. Be Seen is hosted by me, Nate Imig, and Michael Takash. Our producer and audio engineer is Kenny Perez, with additional support from Salam Fatayer. Marketing on 88.9 is led by Sarah Lahr. Our logo and branding by Aaron Bagata. Social media by Dan Reiner and community engagement by Maddie Reardon. Dory Zori is 88.9's program director and Danae Davis is 88.9's interim executive director. Thanks most of all to our members for making this and all content on Radio Milwaukee possible. This is Be Seen from Radio Milwaukee and the Wisconsin LGBTQ History Project. <laughs>